This podcast contains adult language and explicit content. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, I'm Grant. And I'm Erica. And this is From From Crime Crime to to Crime. Welcome back to From Crime to Crime, and a special welcome to our fans in South Korea. We just hit record numbers in South Korea, Erica. How excited are you? (laughs) Pretty excited. Yeah, me too. We're international. We've been international for a while, but like I said, our fan base is growing in South Korea, so thank you, South Korea, for tuning in. I don't count it as international if it's like just a couple, you know? I feel like, oh, that's got to be some kind of like VPN thing where they're like, projecting their ip address to a different country yeah but when we have like a lot from a country it's like oh we're killing it yeah we obviously have mostly international fan bases in english speaking or predominantly english speaking countries but south korea you know coming up coming up strong yeah excited yeah so are you excited about our case tonight i am oh (laughs) i had a i just had a little mini heart attack because why i because I forgot what the case was today, and then I remembered I'm not supposed to know what the case is tonight. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you panicked. You were like, oh, shit. I forgot to read the notes. I tell you all the time that I hear these stories all the time and I forget them. This one I really forgot because yeah. this isn't the one I've been researching for our next case. Yep. So we decided to do things a little different tonight, and I am going to tell Grant a story that I don't think he's heard. And as you all know, even if he's heard it, he probably doesn't remember it. So... Very true. Very true. Yep. I'm excited. I'm excited for you to tell me the story completely because <laughs> this is kind of how our friendship in true crime got started. You were telling me all these stories and I was just listening like, oh, man, this is great. Yep. You know, so this but is kind of back to basics. But then but then you were like, let's make a true crime podcast. And I was like, yeah, but you can't just be an idiot and sit there. <laughs> no, I, I like true crime anyway. So I was looking at documentaries, listening to podcasts. You know, I I'm know. a crime junkie myself. But uh, yeah, but you're right. It was like you would tell me all these stories and I'd be like, man, what's going on with this? And then I was like, you're funny, Erica. Let's start a podcast. Yep. So do you want to hear what we're going to talk about? Yeah, absolutely. I've been looking forward to this all week. So we're going to talk about the Eastburn family murders. Does that sound familiar to you? No, but I, you're hitting, hitting it pretty good. I love murders. Okay. So, and <laughs> this one sounds like it's got a lot of twists and turns. I hate when you say it like that. It sounds so bad. I love murders. <laughs> well, I love the murder story and because it, it's tied into the psychology part, and that's the part I really, really yeah. enjoy. But So that's why I say I love the murders. I don't love the act, but I love what goes into them. All right. Well, let's get started. All right. Gary Eastburn was a captain in the United States Air Force, and he married a lady named Catherine in 1975, and Gary and Katie go on to have three daughters over the next couple of years. Kara, who's five, Aaron, who's three, and Jana, who is almost two. So you got that? Yeah, that's a lot of kids. So, yeah, that is a lot of kids. So Gary and his family were stationed at Pope Air Force Base in Fayetteville, North Carolina, where he was the chief of air traffic control, which sounds pretty awesome. Yeah, it does. It sounds pretty awesome and pretty high paying. I like both those things. Yeah, sounds like Gary's really got his shit together here. So in May of 1985, though, he was nine weeks into a 10-week training course 
in Alabama. He was sent from North Carolina to Squadron Officer School in Alabama, and he decided not to take his family with him because it was only 10 weeks. And for people who aren't in the military, 10 weeks away from your spouse sounds like a long time, but for people in the military, that's not long enough to pick up all your stuff and move. Yeah, that would make sense to pick up and move for sure. No. So they decided to stay, especially because they were getting ready for a huge move. They were looking into Gary taking a liaison job in England, and they were really, really getting geared up for this big move across the pond. So, Was that your British accent? No. Did I do an accent? You did something. Give me your best British accent. Oh. Say across the pond. I can't do a British accent. (laughs) That definitely wasn't a British accent. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe back in the day when I was listening to a lot of Spice Girls, I probably could have done a little more, but... Oh, yeah. I'm sure that you were right on. Yeah. Not that I don't listen to Spice Girls now, but just not as much as I did like 27 years ago. I don't know if that's true, but... What? I don't know if that's true exactly, but... Why? You still listen to a lot of Spice Girls. There's a lot of Spice Girls that plays at your house. Yeah, I know, but not as much as there was when I was 12. (laughs) (laughs) So Okay. Well, that's a lot of Spice Girls. Yeah. So because they're going on this move to England, Katie was making preparations for rehoming their family dog. Oh. I've heard a couple of differing things about this, but one of the most common things that I've heard is that the dog was older and they didn't think that she would survive the quarantine that it required to move Mm. across the country, you know, to a different country. Because I guess when you move a dog to England, you have to have them in quarantine for like a month and... Oh, man. Yeah, they didn't think that the dog was going to do super good with that. So they were trying to rehome their family dog, which sucks big time. That does suck, but it actually kind of makes sense like in this situation. Yeah. So she had posted an ad in the local paper, and she was asking $10 just to kind of like keep the weirdos that just want a free dog away. (laughs) So, well, because people just get free dogs, and then they do weird things to them, and it's really sad. So. I agree. I agree. I forgot about that. But yeah. yeah so she posted an ad for $10 for this dog. And on May 7th, 1985, a 27-year-old U.S. Army sergeant named Timothy Hennis answered the ad. Now, he came to the Eastburn home around 9 p.m. on Tuesday, May 7th, and he met Katie and played with the dog for a little bit and then decided to take Dixie home to see how she would do with his other dog. 9 p.m., like, that seems really late to do something like this. Did he have a late job or, like, what was going on? Because yeah. I don't think I would meet somebody at 9 p.m. Yeah. Well, first of all, now we know about Craigslist killers, so no, you wouldn't be meeting somebody at your home anyway. But Actually, I was going to meet somebody at their home once for a house-sitting thing I was doing off the internet, and... They asked me to meet him at, at like nine or 10 or something. No, I think it was nine. And then they're, and then like they pushed it back. Hey, can you meet us at 11? And I was like, no, absolutely not. I could, I was not even comfortable meeting you at nine. So yeah. I would absolutely. <laughs> and I never talked to them again. Yeah. You're like, no, 11 PM is when you murder people. Absolutely not. Right. Definitely. No, I think that there might be two reasons for this. One could have been, he was an army sergeant and he had, you know, random hours or whatever. But the other thing that mm, I was okay. thinking of is Katie had three daughters under the age of five and she was trying to get rid of the family dog like Mm, maybe she made it for nine o'clock so that the girls were in bed and she didn't have to deal with them having to say bye to their dog yeah okay 
That I mean, that makes a lot of sense. There's no proof of that, but just me as a dog owner and you know a human being, I'm I'm not dealing with three little kids and getting rid of my dog at the same time. Like that just sounds like too much work. Yeah, especially three emotional little kids. Right. So because Captain Eastburn was in Alabama for training, and this was before cell phones and all that shit, so him and Katie wrote letters to each other, and they had a routine phone call every Thursday night he would call from the base. So Thursday, May 9th, he called, and there was no answer. And he was like, oh, that's kind of weird. Like, this is his ninth or tenth week in this training course, and she's never missed a call. Right. You know? And so he's like, well, that's kind of weird. But he waited. He did some other stuff. And then he went back and he called again. No answer. He called Friday. No answer. He finally called the police who knocked on the door, did a welfare check, which they didn't because they just knocked on the door. And when nobody answered, they left their card and left. And he didn't know what to do. So he just kept calling and he called Saturday. And he was really kind of freaking out. And by Sunday, which was Mother's Day, May 12th, the neighbors across the street noticed that the newspapers in the Eastburn's driveway were stacking up. And they were like, oh, that's kind of weird. They didn't say anything about them going out of town or anything, you know. Yeah. And Katie's car was in the driveway. So they were like, eh. So the neighbor, Bob, went over and knocked on the door. And there was no answer. But he heard a baby crying. And he was like, well, that's not good. Yeah. So him and his wife called the police and the Eastburn's babysitter, Julie. And Julie got there, and when she got there, she said that she hadn't heard from the Eastburn family since Wednesday. Oh, man. They could hear baby Jana crying, and so they went around and they saw her crying in her crib through a window. So the police officer was like, well, I don't know what else to do. So he cut the screen and went in. Yeah. Yeah, so the police officer could tell immediately something was wrong because the baby was not in good shape. She was filthy. Her teeth were, like, black. She was, yeah, she obviously hadn't been changed in days. Like, she she was obviously in that crib for a long time. She hadn't had anything to eat or drink. So he grabbed her right away, passed her through the window to the neighbor, who handed her to his wife. And his wife ran across the street, cleaned her up. She put her in, like, a clean T-shirt and a clean diaper and everything. And she tried to give her some milk. And she said that she just, like started downing the milk so fast, and then she immediately threw it up. Oh, yeah. And they were like, oh, this is bad. So they called an ambulance, took her to the hospital, and the doctors would later determine that she was, like, hours from death. Oh, my gosh. That she'd likely been in her crib for three or four days with no food or water. Wow. She was super dehydrated and malnourished, and it was bad. She was almost, almost dead. Okay, so what happened next? So back at the Eastburn house, the police officer knew right away when he went in and grabbed the baby that something was really wrong based on, like, the odor that hit him when he climbed through the window. Yeah. So after he handed Janet to the neighbors, he went down the hallway to the master bedroom where he found the body of Katie Eastburn Mm. in her bedroom. She'd been raped and stabbed 15 times. Oh, jeez. Yeah. So not good. No. Near her mother's body, they found the body of three-year-old Aaron, Mm. and she had been bludgeoned in the chest and the back. Did they know with what? No. Mm. So then they go down the hallway to the girl's bedroom, and they find five-year-old Kara in her bed under her Star Wars blanket, and she'd also been stabbed in the chest repeatedly. Oh, 
Jeez. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. Dude, the kids ones are always the worst. Like, I know. <sighs> and and this one's bad. So the mother, the five-year-old, the three-year-old, and then the almost two-year-old almost didn't make it through this, even though she was unharmed by whoever harmed her mom and sister. She almost died, too, because... She was just left. Yeah. So, Detectives Robert Biddle and Jack Watts of the Cumberland County Sheriff's Office were the lead investigators, and they called Gary in Alabama, and when he got a call from detectives, he was like, oh my god, who's dead, you know? And they were like, well, you should come home, and they wouldn't tell him on the phone. So, he had to get on a plane and make a a two-and-a-half-hour flight back home to North Carolina before he would find out that his wife and his children were murdered. So that's horrible. Yeah, that's really rough. Yeah, so of course he's kind of like suspect number one because it's always the husband, but they pretty much cleared him right away because he was so far away and there was no signs of trouble in the marriage or anything like that. Like It was pretty obvious that Gary Eastburn didn't do this. So what about the dog? Was the dog still there? No. The dog was gone too or the dog was dead? No, the dog was gone. Remember, Tim Hennis had come and picked up the dog on Tuesday night. Oh, he, they actually made the transaction? Yeah, when he came to the house at 9 p.m., he played with the dog and everything, and then when he was done, he took the dog home with him. Oh, okay, cool. And he wanted to take the dog home for a few days to see if it would do good with his dog. Oh, that's right. Okay, I remember that now. Yeah, so dog's gone. That's no big deal. Okay. So in their home... Gary helped the investigators figure out what was missing and all that stuff. And they also found fingerprints, hair, you know, footprints that really didn't match any of the victims or anything. So, okay. They did a luminol test of the walls in the master bathroom, and it showed that somebody tried to, like, clean up the crime scene. Which means somebody was there for a long time. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, they had the time. Yeah. So, Gary Eastburn helped them figure out what was missing, and... The items that were missing was an envelope of cash, Katie's ATM card, and a piece of paper with her PIN number on it. Okay. And a lot of people get weird about, like, why did she have her PIN number on a piece of paper? But this is 1985. I don't know when ATMs were invented, but I feel like it wasn't that long before this. I feel like you're right. It probably wasn't. But, I mean, shouldn't it was it still a four-digit PIN? Like, I don't know. I don't know, but... <laughs> I feel like that might be why the pin was... But you also have to remember when ATM cards came out, they weren't debit cards. They were just to get cash out of the ATM. Right. So it wasn't like you were using them all day long and putting your pin in all the time. Like, you would only use them every once in a while. Mm. Okay. All right. You talked me into it. So I'm going to give her a pass on writing her pin in her wallet. Yeah, you you talked me into it. The whole point of this. Well, because a lot of people are like, what the? And I'm like, yeah. My dad has a thing in his wallet (laughs) that has every username and password for everything that he has. Oh, man. We got to give him the from crime to crime passwords and usernames, too, so you can put them down as a backup. It's written so tiny and it's (laughs) so many things. Like, And he just adds to it. Every time he makes a new username or password, he just adds to it. (laughs) Dave, give me a call. We'll give you the passwords to our Instagram and... Email. I was going to say, but he's never locked out of his shit. Right. And See? we always are. So, well, then. Yep. He's our new uh, security man. Yep. So, <laughs> on the first night of the investigation, a guy named Patrick Cohn 
approached investigators and he was like in the neighborhood and he told them that he had witnessed a tall white guy dressed in blue jeans, a black knit cap and a black members only jacket. Mm, Very 85. Yeah. And he said that he witnessed this guy leaving the Eastburn's driveway carrying a garbage bag Mm. super early on May 10th, which would have been Friday morning. And he means super early, like 3 a.m. That's super early, yeah. Yeah. So according to him, the man got in a white Chevy Chevette and left. And based on his account, they created this timeline where they think the Eastburns had been murdered between 8 p.m. on Thursday night when Katie missed the call from Gary Mm. and 3 a.m. on May 10th when this witness saw somebody leaving their house with a trash bag okay that makes sense good detective yep. good detective work i like it i like it yeah old school detective work i dig yeah. it yeah good job guys so patrick Cohn's description of the suspect also helped them produce a composite sketch of the suspect which they released to the media and then julie the babysitter that was interviewed told investigators that she had took a message from a lady named angela about the family dog that had been advertised, and she passed the message on to Katie. So after seeing news clips of the Eastburn killings and that they were looking for somebody named Angela and whoever adopted the Eastburn's dog and this composite sketch, a lady named Angela Hennis looked at her husband, Tim, and was like, um, hello, that's us. (laughs) Like, we got to go talk to the cops. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, right away. They're looking for us because we adopted that dog. Oh, man. You know, and she was like, we got to go. <laughs> Tim Hennis was like, oh, okay. So <laughs> they get in the car with their newborn baby and they go down to the local police station on May 15th. I wouldn't recommend taking a newborn baby to the police station just in case things went south. That kid's now yeah. a ward of the state. That's not a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe not a yeah. ward of the state, but well. Then- I don't think they thought anything was going south because they adopted this dog on Tuesday. Right. They thought the police just wanted to talk to them because they may have been the last people to talk to this lady. And now they just put two and two together that the lady they adopted the dog from was this family that was murdered after seeing this news clip. And they were like, oh, my gosh. So they're like running down. We got to go straighten this all out. And it's like, well, it's a bad idea. You should get a lawyer. But okay. So Tim Hennis sits down and starts getting interrogated by the cops. And he acknowledged that he picked up the dog on May 7th, but that he had never had any other contact with Katie except a phone call on Thursday that Katie made to him asking him how Dixie was doing with their dog and how was everything going. Right. And he was like, everything's great. We love the dog. That's the end of the phone call. They hang up. And according to Hennis, after that, he drove his wife and daughter to his in-law's house, which was like 90 miles away, on Thursday night. And I've heard different reasons why he did this, that they were going to visit for the weekend because it was Mother's Day, and that they were going early because he had duty. And a lot of people are like, just because he had to work on Friday doesn't mean his wife should be going out of town without him. But I will tell you, if he had duty, it could have been a 24-hour shift, like... There's all kinds of stuff that it could have been. Yeah. A 24-hour shift? That sucks. Oh, yeah. Duty is, it could be, they don't have to follow rules. Oh. They're the military. Yeah, apparently. So, anyway, this is where he said he was. He says he was driving his wife 90 miles away, and then he came home, and that was it. But he looked exactly like the composite sketch. 
that Patrick Cohn had oh, put together. Oh, really? Right. He is very distinct looking. He's like super tall. He's like 6'4 or something. And he's blonde hair with a creepy ass mustache and a big nose. Like, he's very distinct looking. And he looked just like the composite sketch. Huh. So the cops were like tuning in real quickly to this guy. Oh, yeah. But he was cooperative. And he provided hair samples, saliva, blood, everything they asked for. Fingerprints, palm prints. He was like, take it all. I didn't do this. It's fine. It ain't me, girl. Yeah. So after they let Hennis go home with his wife and their baby, they put together a photo lineup and they showed it to Patrick Cohn, the eyewitness, and he identified Hennis. <laughs> and he was like, that's the guy. That's the guy I saw. And so they were like, oh, shit. So, of course, they go back and they arrest Hennis that very night, May 15th. Yeah, that's a, that makes sense. So, good. Good. Mm-hmm. Good still police work. So I like it. So three days after the the body was found, they already have somebody in custody. Watson Biddle had other witnesses and evidence, though. It wasn't just Patrick Cohn. They determined that Katie's stolen ATM card had been used twice, once on the night of May 10th and once on the morning of May 11th. Mm-hmm. And the two transactions together totaled $300, which was the exact amount that Tim Hennis was late on his rent. Oh! Uh-huh. Which was then paid on the 11th. Whoa. Okay, Tim. Yeah, it's not looking good. Yeah, it's not looking good at all. And he also had prior issues with writing bad checks and being late on his rent, stuff like he wasn't good with money, obviously. Man, if this ends up not being this guy, this is going to be the biggest turn of events, I think, in from crime to crime history. (laughs) Okay, well. Oh, hell yeah. I'm so excited. So another witness that the investigators came up with was the lady who had used the ATM after Katie Eastburn's card was used on the morning of May 11th. And she told investigators that she'd witnessed a blonde man matching Hennis's description driving a white car as the one that used the ATM card in front of her. Okay. All right. So we sounds like we got this guy dead to rights. Yeah, it's getting pretty bad. Yeah. Although this is all circumstantial, but it's not looking good. I mean, it is circumstantial, but it is also... It's adding up. Yeah. So, Hennessy's alibi that he had come home on the night of May 9th after dropping his family at his in-laws fell apart pretty quickly. When his ex-girlfriend, Nancy Mazur, told investigators that he had stopped by her house that night and tried to get her to sleep with him because her husband was on deployment. Oh, top-notch individual. So this is looking more and more like... Yeah. And she said they visited for a while, but she turned him down and he left. So that's not good because he didn't tell the cops about that at all. Also, it was found that he had dropped his member, his black members-only jacket at the dry cleaner on the morning of May 10th. Convenient. Mm-hmm. Do you really have to very. dry clean those things? They. I was going to say, washing? actually very inconvenient, like... I don't buy anything that's dry clean only. And if I do, I wear it one time and then it hangs in my closet for the rest of its life because I'm not going to a dry cleaner. I have like three suits, but I wear one of them most often. And I need to get this one, this one cleaned because it's starting to look like the Borat suit. I don't know what that is. Oh, well. Okay. I know. You hate me because I don't watch things. I'm sorry. I don't, I don't care. Like I don't watch a lot of things, and but you watch even less things. Yeah, well, I watch strictly true crime stuff. So, okay, and baseball. <laughs> so, neither one of them are helping me in pop culture. So, That's anyway, true. 
And then one of the neighbors of the Hennesses had an eyewitness account that they said that they saw Tim Hennis burning items in a barrel on the morning of May 11th, which was not a usual thing that he did. It wasn't like, oh, Tim's burning shit again. It was like, <laughs> what is he doing? Like, that's not normal. Huh. Okay. So, All right. It well. was abnormal enough that it stuck out to them to call on it. Sure. Yeah. This dude just killed people. So it makes sense he's, you know, doing yeah. weird stuff and stole their money. And yeah. Yeah. So he's screwed. Yeah. He's acting real suspicious. Yep. So his first trial in Cumberland County starts in the summer of 1986. And before he started trial, for some reason, I don't know why, the prosecution offered him a plea bargain that if he pled to two counts of second-degree murder, that he would get two consecutive life sentences instead of the death penalty because this is North Carolina. So he he took it? Uh, No, he said, no, thank you, ma'am. Did he admit to being guilty? Nope. They okay. offered him a plea bargain, and he said, no, thank you. Okay. I'm going to take it to trial. And they were like, well, good luck with that, dude. Yeah, you- so during the trial, the prosecutor and his team put together the theory that Hennis had taken advantage of the fact that his wife was out of town visiting her parents with their newborn daughter. And he tried his luck with the ex-girlfriend. And when she turned him down, he, knowing that Gary Eastburn was out of town, went to the Eastburns and tried to hit on Katie. And when she turned him down, he raped and murdered her and her two children because they were witnesses. This is the the prosecution's theory. Right. Which I mean, pretty good theory. Yeah. I'm 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 buying it. Yeah. So they called Patrick Cohn and the female eyewitness from the ATM and for more of like a I don't know a weird tactic that they tried. They put this presentation together of all these graphic crime scene photos and they put it on a loop above Ugh. Tim Hennis's head and just played it for the jury for like 90 minutes straight, just like horrible crime scene photos. Oh my Lord. Yeah. And it's like, I get it. They got to see him because they have to make a decision in this case, but that's bad. That's too much time, but well, we'll especially get into that. because you know they had been there for a couple days to decompose and and stuff. Yep. So, jeez. The jury deliberated for ten hours and found Hennis guilty of all three counts of first degree murder and one count of rape. Okay, I'd say that's correct. Yep. So on July eighth, he was sentenced to death because oh. this is North Carolina and you yeah. can't kill babies there. They get very upset about that, which I get. Sure, I'm okay with that. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty bad. So, Hennis was transferred to death row at the Central Prison in Raleigh, North Carolina. Okay. And how long in North Carolina is it a drawn-out death sentence? They usually all are, really. Yeah, that's kind of what I thought, but I didn't know if, you know, California was just... I know there's... Well, California's the worst because they never actually do it. Yeah, and I, I appreciate that, California. Well, other states are long, too. They just eventually get to it, you know? Yeah. But that's it. That's the story of the Eastburn family murders. Isn't that horrible? That's a terrible story. Yeah. That's, you know, I'm, I was really sad. That's not the whole story. Okay, good. Cause I was going to say like, that's (laughs) kind of what you led up with. And I was like, oh, okay, Erica. (laughs) Cool. Great story. So, all right. So, okay. So there's more, which probably means there's a twist. There is a twist. Let's twist and shout. So Tim Hennis is in prison in Raleigh 
and he receives a letter. And the letter reads, Dear Mr. Hennis, I did the crime. I murdered the Eastburns. Sorry you're doing the time. I'll be safely out of North Carolina when you read this. Thanks, Mr. X. Oh, my God. So this anonymous letter was postmarked July 8th, which was the date he was sentenced to death. And they also sent a copy to the sheriff's office. And same same thing that said to to him? The exact same thing? Yeah. It was just like the exact same thing. Yeah. Okay. So that's kind of crazy, huh? Yeah, that's super crazy. Yeah. So in 1988, so this is two years after he's been sentenced, his lawyer successfully appealed Hennessy's conviction at the North Carolina Supreme Court because he said that that loop of the graphic crime scene photos that the prosecution showed the jury inflamed them and that they would have convicted anybody at that point because they were so upset by those yeah, pictures. Fair. That's a that's a really good point. Good job. That's a yeah. really good good point. Yeah, so the judges were like, well, we're not just going to like let him out, but they did rule that he deserved a new trial because of this. Now, how come they took this so seriously and didn't think it was just some kind of false confession that you know, we hear about sometimes like well they didn't they didn't take the note seriously the note was just something i wanted to tell you about that was just kind of weird oh oh. but that had nothing to do with the appeal the appeal was strictly based on the graphic crime scene photos okay oh okay i gotcha yeah and the judges were like you're right that inflamed the jury you know he deserves a new trial and they didn't overturn like they didn't let him out they were just like he gets a new trial because that was bullshit And according to his attorneys, this is the first time that a prisoner on death row in North Carolina had ever been granted a new trial. That's pretty substantial. Yeah. A pretty big deal. Yep. So during the retrial in April of 1989, his defense team did a much better job because they knew what the prosecution's case was. Yeah. They had more time to prepare. So that makes sense. Yep. Good on them, though. I mean, lots of people have more time to prepare and still aren't prepared. They don't. Yeah. Yeah. So good on them. <laughs> so the defense did a much better job of challenging each one of the prosecution's witnesses, like just one by one, just boom. Roasted. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, boom roasted for sure. So Patrick Cohn was the their star witness, the one that saw Hennis leaving the Eastburn's house at 3 a.m. picked him out of a lineup i just gotta tell you i'm really excited to find out what's gonna happen like i'm i'm super jazzed so i don't mean to cut you off i just want to let you know i'm really excited okay (laughs) so patrick Cohn, the eyewitness that's the most solid because he described tim hennis and the car before before they even knew he was the guy who adopted the dog or anything yeah so his testimony was the most solid but they attacked it because he was kind of a a guy. Yeah. He had a little bit of a rap sheet and a little bit of issues with his drinking and stuff like that. And whenever he would get arrested, he would like throw the fact that he was the star witness in the Hennis case at the cops and be like, you better call your DA, bro. You can't arrest me. Like, I'm a star witness. Like, <laughs> and he, like so it was kind of shitty. Like, he would use it to his advantage. Well, you know, and, you know what? Like, you got you to gotta get the come ups in life where you can. And if that's how you do yeah. it, well, then. Yeah, so they attacked his testimony that night because of his behavior, for one. And then also, he had made some, like, off-the-cuff comment about the weather that night being clear. And then a meteorologist testified and was like, nope, it was super cloudy that night. It's like, it's dark. Who the fuck cares? 
Like, you can't tell if it's clear or cloudy when it's dark outside. They got Dallas like, Reigns to come about? out and, and give the, yeah. the Doppler 7 <laughs> yeah, report. I was like, okay. <laughs> I was like, that's weird. But then they also did do a good job about, you know, cross-racial eyewitness testimony, which is, like, very unreliable. Eyewitness testimony is, like, pretty unreliable anyway. And then when you are, are eyewitnessing, I don't know. Did you what, call it cross-racial? <laughs> yeah. Because when you're trying to identify somebody of a different race, you're even less accurate than oh. somebody of your own race. Oh, it's like okay. it's statistics and numbers like eyewitness testimony sucks anyway. It's like totally the worst. But then cross racial eyewitness testimony is even less accurate than that. Oh. And Patrick Cohn is black and Tim Hennis is white. So they did a good job of like okay. really Cutting Patrick Cohn's testimony, like, just, I mean, pretty much rendering it useless, you know? Yeah, okay. So, his lawyers also figured out that the prosecution's female witness, who had seen Hennis use the ATM machine before her on the morning of March 11th, they pointed out that she initially had said that she didn't see anybody, and then changed her story over time. And it was discovered that she didn't even describe Tim Hennis until after he had already been arrested and was all over the news and everything. Oh. And. Oh, now that comes out. Like, uh like, cool. And they pointed out that her transaction was three minutes after the transaction on Katie Eastburn's ATM card, which three minutes is a really long time. And his defense attorneys made everybody sit in silence in the courtroom for three minutes. To show the jury how long three minutes really was. And they were like, that guy would have been long gone. Hmm. Like, who would stand at an ATM for three minutes after they were done with their transaction? That's a long time. Yeah, that is a long time. Like, most people stand there for one second, grab their receipt, throw their receipt in the trash can, and walk away. Yeah, because we're afraid we're going to get mugged. Or this was the 80s, so they probably kept their receipt and put it in their wallet or whatever. But <laughs> No, th- don't you, like, get all sketched out when you're at the ATM like and kind of, like, use those mirrors on each side? Because you, you never know. Like, someone might come up and then you have to, like... Fight them like you're a ninja turtle? Um, I don't use ATMs alone, so no, I don't know. Oh, huh. All right. I either go into the bank or I'm with somebody. Grant, when you're a woman, you have to do things so different than men. <laughs> I don't know You any, don't get it. I, I don't know any woman besides you that's done that. I do understand that women have to be more careful, but like, like my mom- Never like my mom would go to the ATM whenever she wanted. Yeah, but she would probably go through the drive-through ATM, or she would go into the bank, or she would go during the day. Mm, okay, all right, I'll give you that. I mean, I've walked up to yeah. several ATMs at night by myself, and I mean, it's sketchy as is that, and I'm a pretty big dude, so. I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm paranoid as shit. Right. Yeah, let's go with that. I'm not a scaredy cat. I'm paranoid. There you go. That sounds cooler. Yeah, totally. I'll use a drive-through ATM, but I won't use a walk-up ATM especially at night see okay guys i mean i have like i said but it's not my first choice and not something i want to do and again yeah. maybe it's because i'm i'm paranoid and not a scaredy cat yeah probably um we got a lot to go here so oh really can we wrap this is a stupid conversation yeah oh this is totally beside the point this this should take two seconds okay come on get with it grant i'm having a great well, you time. don't know how much is left I'm like, you don't have much as left. No, I'm having a great time, though. Like, this is a really enjoyable conversation, so. Well, I hope you brought snacks, because there's a little bit more. So, where were we? The ATM. Okay, yeah. So, there was three minutes between the transaction. They were like, no fucking way that this girl. So, they're just like... 
bam, bam, getting rid of all of these like circumstantial things, you know? So they also had two new defense witnesses. One was a newspaper delivery lady who claimed that she saw a long-haired short man driving a light-colored van on the morning of the murders. But, like, that's a completely different description. Right. And they found a local teenager that <laughs> named lo- John... A local youth. Yeah, who lived in the Eastburn's neighborhood, who used to, like, jog often near the Eastburn family home. And he looked just like Tim Hennis. He was, like, tall, blonde, with a mustache, and also wore a black members-only jacket. Okay. Okay. And they were like, oh, shit, this guy looks a lot like Tim Hennis. So they're really, like, messing with it, right? Right. Now, we get to the real physical evidence. The footprints, the blood, and the hair samples that were found in the Eastburn home, none of them could be conclusively tied to Tim Hennis. So they weren't his footprints, they weren't his blood, and they weren't his hair samples. But they also weren't any of the victims. Oh, so, okay. So, okay, keep going. Yeah. Yeah, it's getting good, huh? Yeah, it's getting real good. (laughs) (laughs) So the defense also got Tim Hennis's members-only jacket from the dry cleaner, and they sprayed it with luminol and lit it up in the courtroom, and there was no blood stains on it whatsoever. Oh. And the dry cleaner said if there was blood on it, we would have had to treat it differently than a regular dry cleaning, and he wasn't charged for that, so there's no way we would have treated it differently, you know? But to go one step further, his defense team took a members-only jacket with blood on it to a dry cleaner, had it treated for blood, sprayed it with luminol in court, and it still lit up like a Christmas tree, even after being treated. Say that part again. Why? I just say that part again. That was, that, you said that a lot. It was good. I just I want to hear it again so I have it all. Okay. So to go one step further, besides his jacket not being treated for blood and not lighting up for luminol, like when they sprayed it with luminol, his jacket didn't light up. Right. And had never been treated for blood. So they're saying there's no blood on his jacket. Right. They took another members only jacket, put blood on it, took it to the dry cleaner, had it treated for blood to the naked eye, didn't look like there was any blood on it, sprayed it with luminol. And it lit up like a (laughs) even after being treated with the dry cleaning chemicals. So they're saying there was no way that there was ever any blood on his members only jacket because it would still light up after being dry cleaned with the chemical that the dry cleaner says they never used. Oh, wow. Okay. All right. Yeah. That's not good. No. So members only jackets out. Right, but it's good for Tim, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay, all right, good. (laughs) Well, the way you said it, I was like, why is it this good? So the other difference in this trial from the first one is Tim Hennis took the stand during this trial, and he testified for himself. He was like, guys, I didn't do this. I'm really happy to be able to be back on, like, Tim Hennis, like, Team Tim Hennis, because I was kind of digging the guy in the beginning. Like, he seemed like a a stand-up guy, and then... Everything happened. I was like, this guy sucks. I know. You love wrongful convictions. Uh, I love it. I do. I love how much you love them. I do. All right. So it's the justice in it. Yeah. Huh? Yeah. So. Swift justice. Judge Judy justice. Yeah. So after a three-week trial and two days of deliberation, the jury came back and they found Tim Hennis not guilty on all counts of murder and rape. And he was released. See, this right here, though, this stuff right here is why I'm so mostly 
anti-death penalty, this stuff right here, because otherwise this guy could have died for something he never did. Oh, and it's also one of my biggest fears is like a wrongful conviction for something I didn't do based on circumstantial right. evidence. Oh, man, you really hit this one out of the ballpark. But that's what the appeals are in place for is so uh, that if there was a mistake, I know, I know, correct it Gosh, before dang. the death penalty. <sighs> but anyway. man, what a what a ride. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? Oh, so gosh. at this point, this is great. Yeah, so he's released from prison. This is in 1988. Oh, so good. he only served a couple of years. I mean, that's too much if you didn't do the crime. Yeah, but yeah especially he only on death served row. A couple of years. Although, yeah, I've heard death row is kind of like the nicest of the, yeah, the situations. It's better, yeah, I'm sure, because they get TVs and shit and single man cells. And yeah, and like there's no like gang affiliation, so everyone's mm-hmm. just pretty cool with each other, yeah. <laughs> and they're like, eh, whatever, what are, we're yeah. gonna die. So. Gary Eastburn's pissed, though, because he really thinks Tim Hennis did this. And now he thinks Tim Hennis got away with killing his family. And the problem is, is the cops are sure that Hennis did this. And so they had no other suspects. They didn't do any other investigation because they were positive it was Tim Hennis. Yeah. I mean, and honestly, like, you know, kind of fair. Like, everything yeah, was pointing in that sucks. direction. Like it- it just, the yeah. whole situation sucks. It sucks for Tim because he did time he didn't deserve. It sucks for the Eastburns because they think Tim Hennis did it. It sucks for the right. police, for everybody, because it was just, it was a lot. So Gary Eastburn, at this point, he's like, I'm sure out of his mind, and he's like, I just got to get away with this, or I just got to get out of here, you know? So he ends up going to England. Him and his surviving daughter, Jana, finally move to England, and he takes that job with the Royal Air Force and all that. And he meets a woman in England, and she's a nurse, and they get married in 1991. And after he retired from the U.S. Air Force, he worked overseas for a couple years, and then he moved back to the United States, and he settled down in the state of Washington with his wife and Jana, who's obviously now an adult. Right. So... So that's wow. that's what happened with the Eastburns. So he ended up getting remarried, yeah. which is good. And I'm, you know. I, I am happy you you updated me because I was kind of wondering, like, oh, you know, yeah. Now I'd like to know too, like, you know, this guy probably went from like a full on hatred for this man mm-hmm. to then having to like flip the script. Like, I would love to know the psychology into that too. So that's. Very interesting. That's the problem, though, is that the Eastburns think he did it. So they think he got away with it. And, oh. And it bothers them, you know, and they and the, and it worries oh. them. Even that, with all that evidence? Yeah. Even with yeah, all the they, physical evidence in his favor? Yeah. They still think he did it. So. Well, I mean, I guess in that situation, I can understand yeah. that they needed somebody. So following win. his acquittal, Tim Hennis reenlisted in the United States Army because he was discharged when he got convicted of murder. So he reenlisted and he was given the years of back pay that he missed when he was convicted and all of his rank back and everything back to staff sergeant. Mm, Okay, that's good. Yeah, and him and Angela, they stayed together and they went on to have another child after his release. (laughs) And Wow. mm -hmm, And he served in Iraq during Desert Storm and in Somalia. So he received a bunch of awards and accolades when he was in the service. And in 1998, him and his wife, Angela, and their two kids moved to Fort Lewis in the state of Washington, which is also where the Eastburn settled, which is weird. So (laughs) Yeah, real weird. Yeah. So Hennis became a scoutmaster for his son's Boy Scout troop and all like he just lived a normal life 
And in 2004, he retired from the U.S. Army and he was a master sergeant by the time he retired. And like he just went on and lived a totally normal life after this like horrible thing happened. What's crazy is he sounds like I mean, and I'm sure there was a lot of red tape and paperwork, but, you know, eventually he just kind of picked up where he left off, Yeah, you know, in life. Yeah, he did. And that's pretty nuts. Mm -hmm. Like, can you imagine like this is think about this, too, though, like. This guy worked with all these people and they're like, oh my God, you hear about Tim? Like he's a murderer. He killed these people. He's in jail. Yeah. To, oh, he's got out. Like, oh, he's coming back. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And there's, there's a couple things that I've heard on both sides of that, that some people that worked with him were like, oh shit, that makes total sense. He was a weirdo. And then some people are like, there's absolutely no way he could have done this. Like he's the nicest guy in the world. So who knows? But. That's a pretty crazy story, huh? Yeah, but you think he? I can't make the joke. I, oh, man, I'm gonna kill you anymore because yeah. you know. Oh, after you've been convicted for murder. Oh, oh wait, there's one more paragraph here. Hold on. Okay. So in 2005, Captain Larry Trotter of the Cumberland County Sheriff's Office attended a detective seminar, like a you know a cop a cop show, and cop show. The show was on advanced criminal intelligence techniques. Hmm. The case study that they used at this seminar was the Eastburn murders. And after talking to a newspaper journalist named Scott, who had covered the original Eastburn murders and the trials and everything, he learned that they had extracted semen from Katie's body during her rape kit. But what? Oh, yeah. But in 85 and 86, 88, all those other trials. DNA didn't exist. I mean, it was like it was like a pipe dream. But did they hang on to it? Uh-huh. And in 2005, oh, DNA is not a pipe dream anymore. It's a real thing. And right. Very so real. he sent the semen samples from Katie Eastburn's rape kit to the state lab in Raleigh. And, and in June okay. of 2006, they called with a hit. Oh, who was it? Who was it? Who was it? Are you sitting down? Yeah, because you make me sit down for these things. Okay. The DNA from the semen found in Katie Eastburn belonged to Tim Hennis. What? Yep. They had the right guy all along. What? Yep. I. Yeah. What? They had the right guy from the start. Gary Eastburn was right. He killed his wife. Oh, my God. Yep. So I, so they had the right guy, and now he's been yeah. out and about in the free world for two decades, just getting to live his life, hang out with his kids. Be with his wife. I was on Team Tim again. Yeah. I told you this story was going to take turns. Oh, my God. This is the craziest story I think we've ever covered. And I totally understand why you didn't let me have anything to do with this episode because I would have monopolized it. Yeah. You would have been crazy, though. Oh, my God. So now what do we do? I mean, they've tried him, convicted him. Then he got a retrial and acquitted him. They can't retry him. Right. That's double jeopardy. Mm-hmm. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Oh, so my gosh. now we're gosh. just so- fucked. Now he's just like, woo, he could just be like, hey, it's me. I did it. Except the only thing. What the hell? The only thing that helped in this case was the fact that he re-entered the U.S. Army after he was let out of prison. Remember I I told you he went back to the U.S. Army? Yeah, yeah. Apparently in the Army, which some people don't know this, and it's rarely used. Like, they don't use it very often. But even after you're retired- you can be recalled. Like, they can call you up and say, hey, report back to duty. Oh, really? But they don't ever do it. Just Like, that's, what do they want a bunch of old guys for? You know? 
They don't ever do it. <laughs> yeah. So on September 26, 2006, Hennis was recalled to military duty and returned to Fort Bragg. Then they just knocked oh. on his door and they said, hey, put your uniform on. You got to come back to work. And he's like, excuse me, why? Like, I'm retired. Everything's good. I'm out of here. And they were like, nope. So when he got back to Fort Bragg, the commander of the Airborne Corps ordered that Tim Hennis be court-martialed on three counts of capital murder. What? Because double jeopardy doesn't apply to different jurisdictions. Like <laughs> The military is like the mafia. They just play by their own yeah. rules. So if he hadn't have been in the army, though, he would have just been out in the free world because he was acquitted of that murder. But because he was in the army, the army was like, no, sorry, Bob, we're going to deal with this. So they called him back to active duty just so they could court-martial him on three counts of capital murder. Oh, my gosh. Mm. Wow. And in December of 2007, May of 2008, September of 2008, and December of 2009, he appealed. So, like, four times before his court-martial even started, he tried to appeal this. Like, hey, this isn't fair. It's double jeopardy. I've already been tried and convicted and acquitted of this, you know. and God, what lawyer would take this yeah, case? Yeah, and every single appeal was like, Nope, nope, you're going to court. Like, because there's DNA now. Yeah. This is a real good. thing. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. So his court martial at Fort Bragg began on St. Patrick's Day of 2010, and it lasted for three weeks. Colonel Patrick Parrish presided over the court martial proceedings, and a jury panel of 14 military officers was convened. So during the trial, the prosecution focused on the DNA evidence. Because that was the only new thing they had. Right. And they still used the eyewitness accounts to, like, cooperate and just make their case stronger. And Hennis's defense team argued the same shit they did in trial, too, because obviously it worked. But the DNA. I mean, the DNA was the difference in the trials. Right. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And their response to the DNA was his lawyer suggested that Hennis, after going to the ex-girlfriend's house and her turning him down, that he went to the Eastburn house and that him and Katie had consensual sex. And then he left and then she was murdered after. And oh. Oh, his wow. lawyer suggested that this is, like, super common. Every time military men leave town, their wives just whore around with everybody. And this panel of 14 <laughs> military men yeah. that were the jury... <laughs> They were like, did this bitch just call my wife a hoe? Like, <laughs> what? Like, they did not like that at all, which is understandable. Yeah. And you're literally calling a murder victim. Like, you're literally saying she was cheating on her husband just because he was at it. Like, and there was no evidence that that was even a question. So after three hours of deliberation, the jury unanimously found Hennis guilty on April 3rd, 2010. <laughs> on all three counts of murder. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. So on April 15, 2010, the jury panel came back and recommended that Hennis be sentenced to death. I was just going to ask if the military could could sentence death. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. Firing and squad? there's only four. I think only like four or five people on military death row, but Tim Hennis is one of them. Oh he was God. demoted to Private E1, which is like the lowest rank in the military uh -huh. and then he was stripped of all of his pay and all that stuff and dishonorably discharged from the u.s army as an e1 oh my gosh so now he's incarcerated at fort leavenworth in kansas which is where the military death row is and he's still there today he's appealed a shitload of times in the last 11 years and denied every single time 
all the way up to the Supreme Court just issued a ruling in January of this year on one of his appeals that they denied. Wow. One of the best ones that I've heard, too, is the lab that tested the DNA in this trial had some issues with, like, a specific person who worked there, like, wrote reports leaning towards one way or the other when it should have been more, like, about science, you know? Yeah. And so it it, it really had some, like, sketchy connotations that the lab was untrustworthy. And so one of his appeals was based on the fact that that lab had some black marks on their history. And the judge was like, yeah, but you didn't say that in the trial. You said he had sex with her. Like, you admitted the <laughs> DNA was his. Yeah. Like, you didn't say the lab screwed oh. up. Like, that wasn't your defense. Yeah. Your defense was that he had sex with her. So whether or not the lab screwed up about his semen, you still admitted that he was there and had sex with her. So, nope. Appeal denied. Like, even his appeals Bye. are stupid at this point. Yeah. They yeah. Are. Wow. Yeah. So that's the story of the three trials of Doesn't Tim Ennis, say- which a lot of people have an issue with. Yeah. Because technically it's it's double jet. Like, we're not supposed to be able to do this. That's, you know. It's a, it's a nice little workaround, though, for something so heinous, you know, like. Yeah, it is a good workaround. But there are some people who still believe that he's innocent. And he was just there. I don't know how it. you do that. Yeah. I mean, yeah. That's my argument is like even I want to know what his wife says about it. Like because she stood by him all these years, like the couple years he was in jail the first time and then through all of his appeals. And then when he was released and through this whole trial and everything, I believe they're still married to this day. Oh, but really? It's like, what does she think about the DNA? Because yeah. The first time he ever said anything about him and Katie Eastburn having consensual sex that would lead to his DNA was in 2010. So it's like that breaks their trust because then he for sure cheated on her. Yeah, exactly. So how do you how do you trust that your husband's telling you the truth about not killing this family if you can't trust him? And with all the other things that line up so well. Yeah. It's pretty Oh man. It's a pretty intense story and it's sad because obviously three lives were ended. A whole family was well, two whole families were totally turned upside down because of this, you know. Definitely. But a lot of people think Tim Hennis is still innocent and they think that he was framed, his DNA was put there, which that's a whole that wasn't even argued at trial. But mm. that's a whole new thing that he's like, "Well, I gave blood and saliva samples." It's like, "Yeah, but you didn't give any semen samples." Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, no kidding. How would they get that? So, wow. Wow, that Yeah. That's a gnarly story. That's good. That's a good one. Good. Very yeah. good on you. You definitely I feel like that was like a gift. Like I went up up and down and side to side with all of that stuff. So thank you. I, for, for I loved how team Tim Hennis you were for a while. And I was like, oh, he's going to fucking backtrack so hard. <laughs> yeah. DNA no, that's I mean, back. that's like that's like the triple deke in uh, in Mighty Ducks. Yeah. <laughs> like we went one way and we went the other way. And then we faked it and went the other way again. You just made a reference that I've seen. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. the Mighty Ducks. Joshua Jackson, man. Fucking pace. Yeah, he was Charlie. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, man. Yep. Wow. That was good. Great triple deke on that one, Erica. Uh, thank way you. To go. Thank you. Thank yep, you. Yep, you're welcome. So, man, I'm, I'm blown away, honestly. <laughs> like, that one was super fun. I had a great time. Thanks for taking me along for the ride. You're welcome. It's funny because now that we're done recording this one, now you're going to go into a bunch of research. Yeah, maybe. I definitely like, I don't know though. I don't want to look at those crime scene photos at all. No. 
I would not recommend it. There's actually not that many in the world. Like, I've never seen one of the children just of Katie. But I still wouldn't recommend it. It's not great. No, I I don't think it's something I want to go searching for, honestly. I don't. Other than no. that, like, I'm okay. Yep. Well, fantastic. Yeah. Nope, that was great. Well, I'm glad you were able to relax this week. and. <laughs> yeah, I know. And there's something to think about. I got to go tell Christine about all the crazy twists and turns and the triple deke. And... Yep. So, all right. Well, all we right. should let these fine folks on the podcast get going because I'm sure they have shit to do. All right. Thank you for coming, fine folks. Uh, <laughs> if you're interested in what we're doing on social media, because we have to do that to become famous, go check out our Instagram and our TikTok at from crime to crime we're there and we're glorious yeah we're just we're just learning how to use tiktok so it's finally starting to come together a little bit yeah i mean i think we're pretty awesome well come join us on our tiktok and uh you can see how great we are and you can see what we look like oh yeah in case you wondered what we look like yeah well anyway grant's a male model yep so i'm six foot yeah. two uh, <laughs> 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 you're not even five two hey my driver's license says I'm 5'2". Yeah, well, people tend Just, to lie on their driver's licenses. Well, I didn't. I'm 5'2". Five, I'm five <laughs> maybe maybe you used to be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, before I started <laughs> shrinking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> My old age. All right, well, I got to get going because I've got to finish up the deets on your bachelor party. Oh, okay, okay. All right, I love you. Cool. All right, I love you too. I will. Probably later.